I'm Vicki Mochama, and this is No Little Plans, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Canada. Rihanna sang it, and we are going to talk about it. Work, work, work. Specifically, decent work, which is goal number eight alongside economic growth. The two ideas are linked as a goal, which is a big statement. It says you cannot have a growing sustainable economy without good, decent work for the people in it and vice versa. The good news is that lots of people in Canada are working. In December, we hit a record low in unemployment and it has stayed pretty low. As for the economy, there are a lot of ways to measure that, but suffice it to say, it's growing. Here's the catch though. The figures are good, but the work, not necessarily. From the rise of apps like Uber, Fiverr, and Fudora to the increase in AI and automation, workers in 2019 are dealing with a totally new landscape. A new report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives says more than one in every five Canadian professionals are working in so-called precarious jobs. Canada is experiencing record low unemployment rates. Yet, in many small towns across this country, people are struggling with a big shift in the job market. The Brookfield Institute report estimates nearly 42% of jobs are at a high risk of being affected by automation in the next decade or two. At most risk, administrative assistant, cashier, and transport truck drivers. Let's look at it this way. If I ask you whether you like your job, you probably have an answer to that. No, I know you definitely have an answer to that. But if I asked you whether it's decent work, what would you say? Like a lot of people, I don't know what my own answer would be. Before I made this episode, I think I assumed that a decent job is one that lets you pay your bills, right? Like a decent job should, in theory, cover your housing costs, put food on your table, and deal with all the big and little things that come up, like transit costs, car payments, healthcare expenses, utilities, bills, and clothes. But decent work is more than just the pay you take home. It's about making sure that you have the best possible working conditions, that you feel safe, supported, and allowed to have a voice. It's not only what's in your bank account. Decent work is also about how work makes you feel. Dina Ladd is the executive director of the Workers' Action Center, a labor organization that works with non-union workers. As Dina describes it, it's a cross between a union and a community center. The people that they work with are people who might be on contract, who might not even be getting a decent or even legal wage. And because they don't have a union or possibly don't even know who their boss is, they don't know where to turn when something happens to them at work. So they turn to Dina and the Workers' Action Center. Here's my conversation with Dina. We started by talking about some of the big fights that the Workers' Action Center has been involved in. So I would say there's been two or three main fights. Uh, One fight has been the minimum wage. So we have supported a campaign called the 15 and Fairness campaign. And that has been about trying to get the minimum wage basically just above the poverty line so that, you know, workers can make ends meet. As anyone knows, the price of housing and living conditions has is like risen exponentially and our minimum wage hasn't caught up. 
And so the minimum wage has been a huge priority for workers themselves because they've been sort of saying to us, I need to work 60 to 80 hours of work a week if the minimum wage is going to be $11. And we've seen the kinds of impact that has on workers. You know, the kind of derogatory things you hear that people say, oh, you're just flipping hamburgers, you're just serving coffee, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, is that we should give a damn in terms of what happens after that person walks out of that coffee shop or walks out of that burger joint. If they're working 100 hours of work a week and then getting sick, and then having to go on our healthcare system, that's our problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of the 15 and Fairness campaign has been to say, you know, every single person deserves to go to work and have a decent job, right? They deserve to be able to look after their families, to go to work with some dignity and respect. And we don't think that that's too much to ask for. In fact, that should be a basic right. And so, In addition to fighting for the minimum wage, we've been fighting for things like paid sick days. You know, the fact that if you are working and you get the flu, if you lose your income and then you lose your housing, that is a problem. Like it shouldn't be a criminal um, offence to get the flu. Mm. Um, But many of the workers I work with, um, getting sick is, is a huge issue for them. So they go to work sick and then they get sicker or they stay at home because they're so sick that they can't work and then they can't afford fresh groceries, fresh fruit and groceries. They can't afford to fill their medication prescription. They're walking two hours because they can't afford uh, a token to get onto the transit. And so paid sick days for us is such a huge issue. And it's, it's criminal that we do not even provide basic paid sick days or that we did have them so we did have them in Ontario for a year and then the new conservative government took them away and we only had two paid sick days two paid sick days for people to use throughout the year and they took them away so that brings up for me you know all of what you're describing if you're a worker or anybody who even interacts with me you said that sounds Horrifying. That sounds like a terrible thing that I wouldn't want to have to happen to another human being. But, you know, what's the gap then? You know, we don't have a $15 minimum wage in Ontario, and I don't think anywhere else nationally. And we don't have those conditions of, you know, multiple, you know, more than one or two paid sick days. What's the gap? What's not happening? So we have a situation in Canada where there's such a disparity in wealth, where you can have CEOs of large corporations that are making three to $8,000 an hour and who are pushing back and fighting workers who are just saying, can I just make $15 an hour so I can, you know, actually just even pay my bills? And again, remember, we're not talking about a living wage. In Toronto, that is around $20 an hour. Sort of, let's say, an average CEO, their morning of January 2nd is what a worker makes in an entire year. Let's take a step back and think about this one a little bit. How can a CEO accrue an employee's annual salary by January 2nd? As far as we know, that CEO is still on vacation. So we did the math on how that could work. 
The CEO of Loblaws is Galen G. Weston, and as far as we can tell, he earns at least $5 million a year. He's also part of the family that owns Loblaws, so that's nice for him. If we assume that a full-time Loblaws employee is on that $15 minimum wage, then they are earning about 0.6% of Weston's pay, $31,000 a year. Galen has made that by the time he eats breakfast on January 3rd, which is presumably some kind of a champagne breakfast. If I were him, I wouldn't even go back to work on the 4th. But is $31,000 enough for a worker? For that, let's go back to Dina. A recent study came out looking at the um, average prices of housing across the country. And they found that um, it was absolutely impossible for anyone to be surviving on the minimum wage and paying their local housing costs. So for instance, in Toronto, they were basically saying in order to afford a two bedroom apartment, you should be making $34 an hour. $34 an hour. And in Vancouver, it was even higher. So you tell me who's making $34 an hour. I mean, I'm not. No, and we're struggling just to even get people to get a minimum wage that is set at the poverty line. Where's the space where people would be surprised to find out that the employer wasn't paying somebody that a wage that they'd been asking for that they felt they deserved? I think one of the places that people would be very surprised about in terms of the working conditions is a place like Pearson Airport. That's the country's largest airport. Largest airport, largest employer. 50,000 workers work in that airport and only about 20,000 of them are unionized. And if you look at the conditions of work, you would be shocked to see how many people work under $15 an hour with no benefits, with no security of hours. And it is shocking to me to see the kinds of working conditions that exist in a workplace that should be predicated on safety and security. And so to me, in my mind, if you are allowing subcontracting to the extent that people who are taking care of airplanes are being paid such minimal amounts of money with no security, what kind of, uh, what are you jeopardizing in terms of health and security? People assume that those jobs at the airport are really good jobs that it's not the case anymore. In fact, flight attendants only get paid when the airplane is actually moving. So they could be working, you know, checking in people, working at the airport, but only when the plane actually moves do they actually get paid. So they could put in a 16-hour day and only get paid for eight hours. And that's allowed, right? Um, Security guards at the airport who are whose jobs are contract flipped all the time like every three years their contract is flipped they can be making 16 17 dollars an hour the airport puts out that um that request for that contract all the workers go back down to minimum wage again benefits taken away that is absolutely allowed and the CEO of Pearson Airport, for example, is not making, he's not facing any of these conditions. Oh, he's definitely not facing contract flipping, that's for sure. I should note that while flight attendants work at the airport, they're not actually employed by Pearson Airport. They're the employees of their individual airlines. We also reached out to Pearson, and they say that about 35,000 employees at the airport are in a union. So I think the thing that has been 
really amazing to me, though, is that those same workers who have been dealing with such crappy working conditions have been so brave and so courageous at speaking out. All of that struggle for decent work has been really, I think, really being led by workers who have who who are in those types of jobs and who have, you know, decided against all odds to speak up and to fight and you know go on the street corners go door knocking go into apartment buildings leaflet outside shopping centers libraries do whatever it takes to build that support and to me i think that that is the most incredible thing is that you know people don't give workers who are in those jobs any kind of um, thought in terms of their power and their ability to organize, but they are the best organizers because they have everything to win and they have nothing to lose. Before the end of our conversation, Dina told me about one of the biggest barriers to change, which is the subcontracting of work. So you have large corporations like banks and communication companies, airports that have thousands and thousands of workers but instead of employing them directly they hire them through brokers through middle agents those those companies then hire workers to do that work and the work is um, terrible because it's temporary it's part-time it's contract it's long hours it's short hours it's incredible flexibility and the wages are incredibly low Mm. and with no benefits We see workplace injuries happening at an incredible rate. We see issues of discrimination and violations of human rights um, happening all the time. And so when you see that world of work, which has been my world for the last 20 years, then you understand that things have to dramatically change and that we need to kind of challenge this notion that this way of working is inevitable. Our producer Katie keeps hearing this Amazon ad on the radio. Amazon is now hiring for their new warehouse in Bolton. You can earn $15.75 an hour or more as a warehouse associate. Full-time opportunities are available with multiple shift options and benefits start day one. Don't miss out. Now is your time to claim your spot at Amazon. To start your application online or learn more about their upcoming walk-in hiring events, visit Amazon.com slash Toronto Jobs. No previous work experience or interview required. That's Amazon.com slash Toronto Jobs. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. A job that needs no experience sounds, frankly, too good to be true. But it turns out that there are jobs where you can just show up. I wanted to find out what this kind of changing workplace looks and feels like for a worker. So I spoke to Sara Moshtehezadeh, the work and labor reporter at the Toronto Star. In 2016, she spent a month undercover at Fiera Foods, a Toronto-based industrial bakery. The bakery had caught her attention because a worker had died while working there. What Sarah found was a system of temp agencies and employers that made it pretty hard to stay safe. I sat down with Sarah in our Toronto studio. 
So how did you get into the the industrial factories? You know, did you have to apply through a temp agency? Yeah, and I think that process was so revealing as to how little support and protection and structure there is around accessing these types of jobs. Like I literally just showed up at the factory and said I you know, wanted a job and I was given a phone number that I called and left my name. And then two weeks later, someone on the phone called me and said, turn up at the factory at 2 p.m. on this day. And that was it. Like, you know, I got five minutes of training and that was my introduction into this job. So, you know, technically under our current legal system, like that temp agency was my employer, not not the factory where I was working every day. And yet I had never met them. They were just, you know, a voice at the end of the phone. Their offices, we kind of later found out, were just like an empty unit in a strip mall. There was no one there. So you can imagine as a worker, if something goes wrong, like who do you turn to? Um, And I think it can be very bewildering and isolating for workers. I think it's really tough when our laws are such that, you know, a lot of this behavior is legal. And so when you have actors who are kind of taking advantage of that because they can and because it's cheaper, it undermines and it makes the playing field more uneven for everybody. The further you are away from being directly hired by your employer, the easier it is for them to shed any responsibility for you. So in the warehousing sector like that, that is one thing that we're seeing. And, you know, it, it's a difficult sector. Like, there's a lot of injuries in that sector. There's a lot of pressure to, like, move fast and get the orders out the door. I know, you know, Amazon in particular, there has been some concern and controversy around, like, you know, how often you have to make deliveries and, like, whether that's physically att- obtainable for the people who are doing the deliveries. I think there is a growing sense that, you know, having a workforce that you treat as disposable is ultimately sometimes more expensive because the turnover is so great people can't keep up people are getting injured and you're and you're losing you know the expertise and these are difficult jobs like although we consider them to be low skill they're hard Mm. and it it matters who you've employed to do them they're not just widgets you know they're humans We reached out to Amazon, and they didn't respond to our request for a comment. I asked Sara if this disposability is only happening for certain jobs, the type of work that some might think as disposable, like childcare, cleaning, hospitality, construction, or manual labor. In in this day and age, probably almost every job that you can think of, there are some elements of it that are becoming increasingly precarious, like even teaching, which we see as such a like gold standard of a job. That's the like classic middle class job. Exactly. Yeah. When you look at the conditions that teachers in private schools are often working under, you know, sometimes they're classified as independent contractors, which means they have no protection under under labor, labor laws. And when you work out like how much they're being paid compared to like how long of hours they're working, it's like peanuts, might not be accessing benefits or anything like that, certainly not a pension. And, and you know, things like university professors as well, like there's been a huge rise in precarious work in, in those sorts of sectors as well, where if you're not like a full-time tenure prof, which increasingly it's difficult to become, 
you are, you know, you're really not making much money at all. You're maybe having to take on a second job in order to pay the bills. So these would be titles like adjunct or sessional mm-hmm. or instructor, and these are not professor titles, but they are professor jobs. Exactly. Is there a role for the federal government in improving access to decent work? Well, so um, labor laws are provincial jurisdiction, but there are certain sectors that are federally regulated. So there's about a million workers in Canada who are subject to federal labor laws um, rather than provincial ones. So I think the federal government definitely does have a role in kind of sending a message, I guess, to the rest of the provinces about like what we should expect from from basic labor protections. And I think that the city is also a really interesting area as well in the U.S. Cities have taken a really proactive role in trying to promote decent work. So you see cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco um, becoming living wage cities, really cracking down on things like wage theft and, you know, poor enforcement. You know, I think that that does set a tone. Um, the city of Toronto doesn't have the same powers as, as U.S. cities have, but again, I, I think it's about like what you're f- trying to stand for as a city and like, are you doing what you can within your own kind of jurisdiction to, to send a certain message to workers um, and, and set a certain tone? How would you grade Canada when it comes to decent work? I would probably give it like a C minus. C minus. Are we doing better than like Australia or somewhere? We tend to rank pretty low. Like the OECD has actually done a ranking of certainly for protections of temp agency workers. And Canada was the second worst, I think, of all sort of industrialized economies. We had the weakest protections. You know, definitely when you look at Europe and the UK, the basic labor standards are way more robust than ours. And even the U.S., like, I think people are often shocked to know that, like, yes, like, federally, and especially with Donald Trump in power, there have been some real blows to to working standards and, you know, health and safety enforcement. But cities are, like, really trailblazing. Like, I went to L.A. a few years ago to kind of see what they're doing about precarious work and wage theft. And, you know, they've come up with all these tools to, you know, tackle bad employers and make sure that workers, the most vulnerable workers in their city, which is a huge problem given, like, the, there are so many, you know, undocumented workers who are being exploited and so many low-wage sort of construction jobs in, in L.A. And, you know, the measures that they have taken are just so much more forceful than than what we're doing here. I mean, I think we're a little bit complacent about how seriously we take this issue. was a large turnout today of couriers from the app-based delivery service Foodora who gathered here at the Ontario Labour Relations Board with representatives from their company. The workers are pushing to form a union claiming poor treatment and wages. Foodora, not surprisingly, is fighting against it saying the workers don't have the right. Well now it will be up to a Labour Board arbitrator to decide. Thomas McKechnie is one of the Fedora couriers who's trying to unionize. He's been working for Fedora as a bike courier for around four years, and recently he's gotten fed up. 
we reached out to Fudora to ask about the unionization effort, and they said that they won't comment on an ongoing legal issue. Thomas, however, sat down with us in our Toronto studio to talk about his experience on the job. What is Foodsters United? Uh, Foodsters United is a um, group of couriers who came together and sort of recognized that their... Um, like initially, it was, a, it, was, it was a group of people who'd worked for the company for quite some time, uh, and so had watched the, the job get worse and worse and worse over the course of uh, having worked for the company. And people who sort of recognized that the structure, the whole structure that the thing is built on, this whole gig economy, independent contractor premise, was um, just an excuse for the company to avoid uh, taking responsibility for itself. Tell me about your first shift or, or your first week working at Fudora. What was that like? Uh, I actually started when the company was Hurrier, which was a Toronto-based app that was eventually bought out by the German multinational Fudora. Uh, and so um, the first was sort of equal parts exciting and scary. I'd done a, I had cycled a bit in the city, but never as much as I had at that point, because I, I went from sort of like occasionally biking for fun to biking 40 hours a week for a job. At first, it was very exciting. Um, it's a bit like a video game, because it's sort of like, go to the place, pick up the, you know, you, you, you have a quest, go to, the, go to the place, grab the item, bring it to the person, drop it off, go to the thing. And so sort of fun and, yeah, really enjoying sort of the, the work um, and the opportunity to sort of explore the city and be outside on my bike, which is a wonderful way to be outside. Let's fast forward to four years later where you're still working at the company, but things, your relationship with them has changed. What has changed? Well, in part, it's the things that have um, stayed the same that were the biggest problems for me. I was being paid the same amount three years after I started the, started the at the job than I was when I started, and my rent had gone up 40% in that time. And so um, that was the thing that hadn't changed that was the problem. And uh, I had seen people seriously or permanently injured on, on the job over the course of it and had seen the company sort of wash their hands uh, of these folks and leave them to sort of deal with the consequences of sometimes quite serious injuries. Like what kind of injuries? A good friend of mine has broke their arm and their elbow. Another friend of mine um, shattered their ankle. Their doctors aren't certain whether they're ever going to get mobility, full mobility back in their ankle. Like they might just like that might just be how their life is now. Uh, and so it's uh, injuries like that, that it's like, it's one thing if you get hurt and you have to take some time off to heal. And that's one thing. But if you're never going to heal, like is the company, the company's not going to be with you in 10 or 20 or 30 years. The company doesn't give a shit. So what is Foodsters United asking for? The three major um, sort of pillars of the campaign are um, fair compensation, uh, health and safety, and respect in the workplace. Uh, so the fair compensation is like, as we said, there has been no accounting for the inflation um, over the over the years the company has been operating. Toronto is one of the most expensive cities in the country to live in. Uh, and the cost of living has rapidly, rapidly uh, uh, gone up. And there has been uh, no change in how much we are being paid. How much do Fudoria couriers get paid? And there is no floor. We get paid per order. And so how the pay structure works is you get $4.50 uh, flat rate per delivery plus a dollar per kilometer, uh, plus tips if and when we get them. Um, you can make just a whole range of uh, range amount of money. The company likes to use the number 21, uh, like $21 an hour, sort of what people can, can make on average. Uh, the problem is that there is no um, consistency. And so if you sign up for a shift and there are no orders available, you will make $0 or you'll make less than minimum wage. It also fails to take into account the uh, expenses, like the, the expenses of sort of car or bike maintenance, uh, of feeding ourselves, of, um, um, uh, and uh, a big one is the taxes that we pay. 
because we're listed as independent contractors um, for things like uh, CPP and EI uh, aren't covered by the uh, aren't covered by the company, and so we have to um, pay out all of that every uh, every spring in taxes. And so I generally wa- I generally pay about three grand a year in taxes. There are a lot of costs involved in running this, and I'm on a bike, so I'm imagining the people who are riding, you know, um, a $1,500 e-bike or a new car or something like this, like the, the costs involved can be even higher. Mm-hmm. So that $21 figure that the company cites, even if that were, uh, you know, what people were getting, that's still chipped away by, by all the costs that you're taking on. Are there other non-financial costs that the uh, Food Studios United are looking to have addressed? The non-financial costs can be in things, is sort of a part of the health and safety Stuff because if we get injured at work, if we get um, get knocked off our bike in traffic, or if something happens to us, we do have sort of pretty base level WSAB coverage. Um, the WSAB is pretty legendarily bad and difficult to work with, um, and who are, are really working to keep money out of people's hands and trying to get people off WSAB as fast as possible. And so folks will often not bother with it and will simply like work injured or uh, take the time off and sort of recover by themselves or not take any time off and just sort of like. Um, there's a real, there can be a real machismo uh, in the, especially among the bike couriers, about just like muscling through and mm. hurting themselves, and, and people will hurt themselves more. Uh, and so, the, any costs associated with um, maintenance of your body, um, especially maintenance of your body after an injury, those are all going to fall on on you, and they can leave sort of pretty uh, permanent, lasting effects. So, I have to ask then, you know, if your relationship to the company has changed over three years. What makes you still want to work for them? I think that in, in part, there are some pretty simple things. Like it's, I like to ride my bike. I like, I'm good at this job. It occasionally has a useful flexibility and it's um, nice to be paid to ride your bike. Uh, I also think that just as a person who is trying to be conscientious of their impact in the world, that I could just sort of like walk away and say like, you know, it's a mugs game. And like, if you work for that company, you're dumb. But it, I don't know, that seems to be leaving the world worse than I found it. Um, and so we've been in situations where like, when there's a company like this, whose whole business model is like, just built on a kind of uh, falsity or uh, a sort of um, like a real bullshit premise, like the independent contractor premise that they that they use, that it is, um, it, it's your responsibility to deal with that. Like you, I'm, I'm here and I feel responsible for the quali- for, for the for this uh, company and for my comrades in it. Uh, and so I want to stay here and improve the situation rather than just sort of disappearing. Because especially because like this gig economy, um, independent contractors, last minute sort of system, they're not going to stop. They're, they want to make everyone's job like that. Like they, they want to make everyone's job uh, to like wash their hands of as much responsibility for workers as they can. And they want to do that everywhere and to everyone. And so if you're listening and you're like, well, I'm not like a like, but, you know, like career jobs are always sort of weird and like that. It's fine. It's like they're coming for yours next. Like they're whatever you do, they're going to try to do the same thing to you. And so it's like you got to fight it somewhere. Might as well fight it here. I set out not being entirely sure what decent work is or what it could be. But in sitting with Dina, Thomas, and Sarah, I started thinking about how my own work has changed. Like a lot of people, I don't do just one job that pays well. Most weeks, I feel like I work seven jobs that don't pay that much. And none of them guarantee my safety, my physical and mental well-being, or the ability for me and the people I work with to organize collectively. However, knowing that it's not just me that feels this way helps. It lets me know that there are others looking for ways to change a rapidly emerging status quo. As the economy evolves and changes, there will be companies that 
want to pay us less and take less responsibility for their workforce. But we're not without options. As our guests have shown, we can take responsibility for each other and speak up for one another. I'm Vicki Mochama, and this has been No Little Plans, a podcast brought to you by Community Foundations of Canada. This episode was produced in partnership with the Atkinson Foundation. Our producers are Dorsa Islami and Jay Coburn. Our executive producer is Katie Jensen, and our music is by Elcon. This podcast is a project of Strategic Content Labs, Canada's content marketing consultancy. For more on decent work and the other SDGs, check out alliance2030.ca. It's a website keeping track of SDG efforts across the country. You can also check out the work of our friends at the Atkinson Foundation and take a listen to their podcast on decent work by going to justworkit.ca. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show so that more people can join us as we look at the big plan to change the world. 